Well, this is part two, and um, I thought I'd just begin with a bit of a reflection on, on something that all of us, a word that all of us use at some point or another, and that is the word agenda. Um, the more I observe my own life and observe other human life, the more I realize that every single person who's living, breathing, and thinking, everybody has an agenda in everything they do. There's a, an agenda is simply an expression of your will or your wish or your desire or your want. And every person has something that they want or that they will towards. That's, that's, that's an agenda. And uh, whether you're self-aware of what your agenda is or not, um, or whether you're willing to be honest with those that you talk to or live with, what your agenda is, is another story. But everybody has one. You have one. I have one. And what's Equally interesting is that when agendas between two parties or two people align themselves so that both people want or will exactly the same thing, there is what we call community or fellowship and joy in that fellowship when, when those, those agendas are aligned towards the same exact thing. And the opposite is also true, and that is when those agendas between two parties kind of at least tempting to move in the same direction are incompatible that is, people really want two different things than what they're endeavoring to do, well, then there is inevitable disappointment, conflict, and frustration. Or a couple of uh, harmless illustrations to that. And then that leads us right into chapter one. Two guys decide they're going to go golfing on the golf course. Both men show up with their clubs. Both men are going to hit a ball off the tee. But both come with completely different agendas. Golfer number one, let's just call him Dave. His agenda coming out to play golf is, is very simple. I just want to breathe in the fresh air, take in the green golf course, and spend time with my buddy. That's his agenda. Very simple. Guy number two, let's just call him John, Dave and John. Uh, John's agenda on the golf course is quite different. He's not only competitive, but if he doesn't beat his last game, he gets upset. And when he shanks one off into the rough or into a pond or off out of bounds, you know, he goes happy Gilmore on his clubs and just starts smacking them and then cussing at the balls. Well, two guys with two completely different agendas playing golf, one that's not serious about golf, the other one that's overly serious about golf, how good is that union going to be? It's probably not going to be that, that wonderful an experience. Uh, guy number one's going to be going, what's the big deal? Guy number two is going to be saying, why don't you care more about golf? Not exactly a good cohesive union. Or... Illustration number two, um, vacation. Two families decide that they're going to go on a vacation together to Hawaii. Family number one, a rigid schedule. Everything calculated down to the half hour. Seven o'clock, this is Oahu, by the way, setting. Seven o'clock, wake up. 7.30, pack picnic. Eight o'clock, make a trek to Hanama Bay. Before the crowds get there, spend two hours in Hanama Bay. At uh, 10 o'clock... Take a bus to North Shore to see a surf competition. At 11.30, stop off for shaved ice. At 12 o'clock, take a tour of the Dole Plantation. At 12.30, have lunch in the parking lot. At 1 o'clock, hit Pearl Harbor. Do the whole Arizona thing and see the net fancy little movie. At 2 o'clock, going to hike Diamond Head. 5 o'clock, luau on the beach. 7 o'clock, let's take a catamaran out into the ocean to look at the lights of Honolulu. And at 9 o'clock, a nice stroll along the beach amongst the tiki torches. 10 o'clock, lights out. It's exhausting just actually to say all that stuff, right? That's family number one, schedulers. Family number two, 
They have one thing on the agenda. Just, just let the day come. Wake up when you want to. Read if you want to. Go to the beach if you want to. Pick the restaurant in the moment if you want to. If you want to stay in the hotel, that's fine. If you want to go out on the beach, that's fine. One agenda. Just simple. Just let the day come. How, how well do you think those two families, if they're trying to actually do anything together, how, how well are they going to function? Two completely different agendas. Probably not too well. You know, a little bit of disappointment, unmet expectations, maybe some frustration and conflict. Two different agendas. Keep that in mind, those opposites. Where those agendas align, there is unity, community, and joy. And where they are at odds or incompatible, there is disunity, conflict, frustration. When you come to Jonah chapter 1, and actually just even the opening verses, you realize that there are two parties, Yahweh, the Lord, and his prophet Jonah. And their agendas are not aligned. Uh, God's will, Yahweh's will, his agenda for Jonah is take this message into hostile territory to Nineveh and proclaim it there. That's the agenda of the Lord. That's the agenda of Yahweh. The prophet doesn't like Yahweh's agenda, as we learned last week. So he forms his own agenda. Instead of heading east into Nineveh, he decides, I am going to take a ship to Tarshish, what I like to think of as a resort town somewhere in the western Mediterranean. Two completely incompatible and conflicting agendas, Yahweh's and the prophet's. And this chapter shows us what happens when those two things are incompatible. Our agenda versus Yahweh's agenda. And we learn both something about God as well as something about ourselves. In particular, um, our tendency towards rebellion and where that heads. So I want to look at this chapter 1. It's one of the most dramatic stories in the Old Testament. You just look at the story, and then I want to draw out several implications for, like, what does it mean to us, okay? So story first and application second. The story begins, and let's just use a little bit of artistic imagination. I mean, everybody knows the story. At least most people know the story, so it's really hard to, to just not know what's coming, right? But just a little artistic imagination of, of you know, Jonah makes it onto the boat. He finds the boat. He's overjoyed. Ah, I can see the resort town of Tarshish. I want to get away from my career, away from my calling, and away from the presence of the Lord. You can imagine some Jewish ladies out on the pier saying, Arrivederci, and all that stuff to Jonah. I would imagine um, that it was probably a nice day. Otherwise, they wouldn't have set sail. So it was probably a nice day, nice fresh sea breeze blowing in the face, and, and the waves gently lapping against the boat as they take off into the sunset. And then someone calls Jonah and says, wake up, no. What the, what, the, what, the, what the sailors don't realize, to them it was probably just an ordinary trip. What they don't realize is that they are harboring a rogue prophet of Yahweh. You know what the, the, the Army and Navy and Marine Corps does to people who go AWOL? It's, it's not good. Only this is, a, this is a prophet who is specifically called and commissioned by, by the creator himself, and he is going AWOL. He's going rogue. He's going the opposite direction, and they have no clue that they have a, an AWOL prophet in their ship until they start to see dark clouds rising, and that, that, those little lapping waves become tumultuous waves. And, and pretty soon they find themselves in this, in this perilous situation 
um, where the, there, there, there's this massive storm that's, that they're embroiled in to the point where the ship is about to break apart. And Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4, tells us that this is no ordinary storm. This is, this is, this is a working of somebody far bigger than just a storm. That is, this is a storm directly from the Lord. The text reads this. It says, but the Lord, or Yahweh, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ships, uh, the ships threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the, the cargo uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Very interesting. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It opens up by telling us that this is, this is the hand of Yahweh that has sent this storm. In fact, it, it's kind of a word picture. It says he hurled it. That is a Hebrew term that often is used of a, of a, of a, of a man who's hurling a spear at his enemy. It almost pictures God as, as taking the, a spear, only this time it's a massive storm. It's a, what does it say, a mighty tempest. And he just hurls it onto the otherwise nice, neat, cozy little ship. And now the ship is in the middle of massive turmoil uh, in, in, in um, breaking up um, and in, in, uh, in a perilous situation. That's the Lord. This is the Lord's, Lord's doing. And the, and the mariners, it says, were, were afraid. And they, they, they did everything they could to, to, to save their ship. They tried theology first and then practical stuff second. You know, as it says, they start, they start calling out to their gods. They're, they are theists. And they're not monotheists as a believer in one God. They're polytheists. They believe in lots of gods. Um, different gods who have different, if you will, assignments or different areas of, of protection or dominion. So you have a god of fertility, god of the storm, god of the sea, god of the land, god of the sun, and so forth. So you have all of these gods with their own little dominions. And you can see them calling out to the different gods trying to figure out who's behind the storm. I'm picturing, you know, kind of flipping through the divine yellow pages going, which one's responsible for this? We've got to call out, and, you know. But the fact is... There's no divinity that's responding. No gods are speaking. No gods are doing anything. The pantheon is silent. Their theology is worthless. The gods are not coming to the rescue. So they do the practical thing. They start offloading all of their precious cargo into the sea, thinking to lighten the load and save the ship. That's what they're doing. They're doing everything they can, their, their, their theology and in their practicality. And meanwhile, the prophet is asleep. It's, a, it's, 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 it's an irony, and it's, it's rich and thick through the whole story. The pagans, polytheists are pagans, the pagans are praying, and the prophet is sleeping. It's like cozied up with his, you know, his wooby and his, his pillow down in the belly of the ship, just sleeping. And the impression that it gives, that these, the, the, the pagans are praying, and, and, and Jonah is sleeping, is, is kind of this passive... Um, resignation as if Jonah doesn't really cares what care what happens next and I think I think that's 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 an accurate picture he just he doesn't really care at this point he has actively rebelled in the first three verses he actually got up and did all this action to go west when he should have gone east and now he's in the boat and you see him asleep a picture I think of pessimistic passive resignation like kind of like whatever God doesn't, 
I, God doesn't have my agenda in mind, and so I'm just, whatever. That's kind of a, a, a statement of where his heart's at when a person, because they're disappointed by God and, um, and things aren't going well, whatever. Kind of a pessimistic, passive resignation. I think that's pretty typical oftentimes of, of believers when they wander away. Or when God's agenda for them is not their agenda for them. They find themselves disappointed and angry, and they kind of get into this pessimistic, cynical, passive, whatever. I know people like that. I've been in places like that. That's what can happen to your, your faith in, the, in a wayward path, is you just come to that place of whatever. Some of you in this room have been disappointed by God because his agenda isn't your agenda, and you find yourself upset about it, and you've probably come to this numb place of whatever. That's where Jonah is. That's, and yet at the same time, the sea's going this way and that way, and the sailors are doing everything they can to save the ship, to save their lives. Well, they dig deeper. They suspect that it is, in fact, the divinity that's behind this whole thing. And so the text goes on to say that they decided to draw straws, not straws, lots. They're casting lots, which is a, a traditionally Jewish thing. They, they cast lots, and wouldn't you know it, the lot lands on Jonah. Singles him out. Everything is conspiring against Jonah. And so they ask him, tell us. On whose account this evil has come upon us? Now, pause here for a second. The lot has already landed on Jonah. He's already been identified. And now they're asking him, on whose account? Which means they don't necessarily at this point suspect that he's the culprit. But I think they do suspect that he knows who the culprit is. Namely, who's this divinity behind this thing? Who's the God who sent this storm? He said, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, and here he spills the beans. <laughs> I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we're not given all of the answer, but apparently he came clean. Not only said he's a Hebrew and um, that he's of Israel, but that he's a prophet and he's running away from the Lord. So they get that much. But you notice they're extremely afraid. When, once they hear this, this is the revelation that turns the whole story um, in a different direction. Is that they're extremely afraid because of something that Jonah says. A key piece of information, a key part of his profession that they hear with their ears. And it's right there in the middle when he says and identifies who Yahweh is. He said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In saying this, he's saying that Yahweh is not this provincial divinity who oversees like fertility or, or corn or, or just the weather. He's declaring that Yahweh is a cosmic divinity. He created every molecule and every atom in the universe, both dry land and the sea is his jurisdiction and the heaven. Now that is all inclusive. And that's who I'm running from. 
You saw the video at the beginning of all the sons getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, that's just like easy for him. And, and, and hear Jonah saying, yeah, I, I, I fear Yahweh. He's the one who exercises dominion over all the stars and suns and over the sea that we're in and over the dry land. There's everywhere. I'm running from him, which is why they are so afraid. Now they're like, wait a second. And why they're so unbelievably astonished. Like, what are you doing? Notice there's no question mark. What is this you have done? It's, a, it's an exclamation mark. Like, it's unbelievable that you would think, as a prophet commissioned by God, that you would run away from somebody that massive. But that's what he's doing. And why they're so fearful. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Another twist or irony. Jonah's the one who professes to be the one who fears the Lord, verse 9. And I fear the Lord. But it's the pagans who actually do fear the Lord. They're the ones who are exceedingly afraid. They're not afraid of the storm anymore. They're afraid of the one behind the storm. There's someone much bigger looms behind the storm. God himself. As I said, these these sailors, they they, they 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 were theists. They understood incorrectly. They understood that divinity was behind what happens. They mistakenly believed it to be different gods. The Jewish and Christian perspective is it's one God. But at very least, they recognize that divinity stands behind what happens on earth. Unlike today, where we see things almost exclusively as the result of cause-effect nature. That droughts are simply a matter of weather patterns or changing climates. And that there isn't a massive creator, God, who's behind these things. Which he is behind the drought we're in. God's sovereign over all those things. It's not simply a matter of mere physics. There is a God behind these things. And at least these polytheists recognize it. And now they hear that it's Yahweh himself who's controlling all of this and we're very afraid. It just goes to show that you can say truth about God and believe the right information about God. Jonah knew the truth of who God was as the sovereign over the earth, heaven, and oceans. And yet, the ones who are really fearing, who feel it in their hearts, are the ones you don't expect. It's really easy to be in this room, sing all the right songs, say all the right words, and have your heart so far away from the Lord. Prophet whose heart's so far away from the Lord. Pagans get it, prophet doesn't. Pagans fear, prophet doesn't. Well, he's the, the expert, right? He's the prophet, so what do they do? They're in the middle of this massive storm. The revelation has come out. Yahweh's behind this. And now the logical question would be, well, what do we do? Like, how do we get out of this situation? And that's what they ask him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's getting worse and worse, not better and better. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me. Here he's acknowledging guilt. Not repentance, but guilt. That this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. They, they at least have some level of compassion. They, they should have just tossed him over. But they don't. They like go back to the oars. Let's try and save this guy. To the point where they, they, they give up. They realize it grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. 
And again, massive irony. The pagans are now the ones praying to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, or oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not um, on us innocent blood for you, oh, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. They ask him what to do. What do we do? And you know what's missing? There's, there's, he doesn't pray. Not once in chapter 1 does he pray. One expects a prophet to pray, dang nabbit, but he doesn't pray. He doesn't beg for mercy from the Lord. He doesn't repent. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. None of that stuff. He just says, toss me to the sea. That's crazy. Have you ever seen The Perfect Storm? If you haven't, like that's one of the best big, huge storm movies I've ever seen. Maybe Twister from back in the early 90s. But, you know, big, huge storm. I read the book first and it scared the tar out of me. Like to be tossed into a, you know, a violent storm with waves and, and white caps and dark, churning water. I was just like, ah, that's one of the top two nightmares that I have. And he's like, yeah, toss me to the sea. Now pause just for a second. Just see where he's come. He's, Jonah's life has gone in a downward spiral. It started with an act of rebellion of just leaving. Then you sense this passive, pessimistic resignation. And now we realize there is this passive, uh, pessimistic resignation to the point he'd rather die than obey. He'd rather die than receive mercy. That's, that's, that's the level of the depth of the hardness of, our, of his heart. And that's how I read chapter 1. He's saying to the Lord, listen, go ahead, kill me. Almost as if he's forcing God's hand to enact justice. And all the while, the way that Job acts puts him in a place of control. Even saying, all right, God, kill me. I'm going to almost force your hand. I'm throwing myself into the water. Or actually, they're going to throw me into the water. Puts him in control. And then, as I said, in an act of irony, these, these pagans, you know, they, um, <laughs> I picture them holding up Jonah and they're praying, oh, Lord, Yahweh, you know, the one who's, over everything. Just don't hold this to our account that we're throwing your prophet into water. Kind of a scary thing. Naming him twice. Lord, Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. The prophet doesn't pray. The pagans are praying. They started in the name of their gods, and now at the end we find them praying in the name of Yahweh and praying to Yahweh, and they toss him overboard. Boop. And amazingly enough, the sea becomes calm. As a bit of a side note, there are interpreters who believe and understand the gospel accounts when Jesus is out with his disciples in the ship, in the boat, in our Galilee, and a fierce wind comes up, and the waves are coming into the boat, and Jesus is asleep. Not asleep because he's passively pessimistic, but because he's completely confident in the will of his Father. That is built on this episode. And then when Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and he says, cease, and the Sea of Galilee becomes calm, that that's a way of saying Yahweh incarnate has entered earth and has come. And he does the same thing in the Gospels that Yahweh does in 
Jonah chapter 1. The sea is still. And oddly enough, it's the sacrifice of the prophet that leads to the salvation of the many. And here they are at the very end. The sea is calm. They realize that they have been delivered. They have been saved in the name of Yahweh. And what is it they do? What what do people do when they genuinely and authentically know that they've been saved from something horrible? They worship. That's what they do. They begin to offer sacrifices. First, they're exceedingly fearful, like the fear of God, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of transformation. Um, They they offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and they make vows to him. Now, does that mean that these polytheists became monotheists? Not necessarily. It doesn't tell us. They would probably simply add him into what they already knew. But one thing's for sure. In what they did, they acknowledged that Yahweh was supremely sovereign and he was gracious. They came to that understanding and uh, kind of moves us down the road of where the Bible eventually goes to ultimate salvation. So, you know, what a picture. The pagans are worshiping and the prophet is flailing around in the dark ocean in his hardness of heart. But as I said, Um, the Lord is not going to allow Jonah to have his way. Jonah wanted death, it seems. And so what does the Lord do? Just as he sent the storm, now he's going to send another device of creation. He has prepared, appointed a fish to come swallow his prophet. And that's how chapter 1 concludes. And the Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign of heaven and earth, and by the way, fish, a great fish to swallow up his prophet, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I told you that I, I, I suspect that Jonah's like, ah, kill me, go ahead. You're going to move your hand to judge me. And uh, God says, no, I'm not going to give you that, but I'm going to take you as close to death as possible. And so he experienced for three days what it's like to be in a living tomb in the depth of the ocean. And think about it for a second. It's ingenious. Let me come back to ingenious in a second, but if you have a problem with the fact that a fish swallowed a man and a man um, lived inside a fish for three days, well, you're going to have real problems with Jesus changing water into wine and raising the dead too. we, 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 We read a Bible of a God who's supernatural and does the impossible. It's not too hard for him to actually create a fish where a man can live for three days. And to get bogged down in the question of how can that happen is really to miss the point. But it's ingenious. Because what Yahweh has done to his prophet is he has stripped him of all control. He is in utter darkness. Completely alone. It's not like Geppetto and Pinocchio inside the whale with a little light and a table. It's just none of that's happening. There's no movement. He's completely confined with nothing but darkness and his own thoughts. What does that do? Three whole days confined in what amounts to a living tomb to contemplate everything you just experienced, helpless and completely beyond any control of your own. It's going to be in that place, the tomb of the fish, that God's going to eventually get his attention. But that's chapter 2. So what do you learn from something like this? You see, he's gone 
down to the point where you'd rather die than obey, die than receive mercy. Four quick applications. One, the story teaches us that God will always be glorified. We tend to think that God's glory is dependent upon our success or our spirituality or our moral goodness or even our obedience. The fact of the matter is God was glorified in this story despite the rebellion of his prophet. The pagans are praising the Lord. They got to experience the power and the revelation of, of Yahweh as almighty God. God will get the glory at the end of the day. That is a certainty in the Bible. He will always get the glory. Two, the story shows us the graduating or maybe malignant effects of sin, both personal and communal. We tend to, to think that, well, sin is one of those static things. It doesn't grow or expand but in fact, the Bible pictures sin as something that is powerfully malignant. It never is static. It always is growing and consuming and tearing apart. That's, that's what it does. And you see the effects in his life. His decision to rebel at the beginning turns into this defeatist, despairing, despising of God at the bottom of the pit. Go ahead and kill me. That's where it goes. The hardness of heart that it leads to. A rebellion leads to hardness of heart that leads to more rebellion that leads to hardness of heart. It's malignant, which is why it's so dangerous, and yet we just often, including myself, just don't realize just how dangerous it is. But it also has communal effects, and that, has, that comes out in the past in chapter, chapter 2. It's not just Jonah that's affected. I mean, these guys lose their cargo. They almost lose their lives. From the beginning of the Bible, we find that sin is always, always has communal effects. Uh, implications and, and applications and, and effects. I mean, Adam's single sin launched all of us into oblivion. Here, his, his, his rebellion is, 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 is a, has had a massive effect communally on the guys around him. And the same is true of you and me. Um, my rebellion, if I choose to wander, it affects my wife, it affects my children, it affects my family, it my friends, my church. That's how it is. Um, human rebellion and sinfulness is never a private affair. And those who want to tell us that what you do in private, what you do in public don't affect each other, that is a boatload of stuff. What you do in private will have a social effect on those around you, period. You see that in the text. Three, it shows us the severity of God's unrelenting mercy towards his stubborn children. Severity. They just pause and think about everything that the Lord Yahweh did to get the attention of his prophet. He sent a violent storm. This is a violent form of dark discipline. He sends a storm and then a fish. He encapsulates the prophet in a tomb, a living tomb of a fish. That's pretty severe. And just to recognize that, you know, in the, even Paul, he warns the Romans in chapter 11 of Romans 11. He says, Always remember both the kindness and the severity of God. Don't lose sight of either one of those. And the simple point is, is that if you are one of his, you, know, you have your spirit in you, you are his child, you're one of his chosen ones, he will hunt you down. And remember, he's the God who owns every molecule and atom in the world. So he can use any means, including severe means, to bring you back into alignment with his will, back into alignment with his heart, back into alignment with his agenda, so that you can experience that joy and oneness and community with him again. 
That is this severe mercy. I think Luther called it a merciful wrath. Um, has as its motive God's love for us. And that is in one sense a warning. Like I, if Jonah was here today, he was standing here. In one sense he is because he probably wrote the book. And so we're kind of listening to him through the book. He'd probably say, listen, I've been down that road. And he'd just tell you, don't go there. Take my word for it. Read my story. Don't go there because God's going to come after you. He always gets his way. Not sometimes. He always gets his way. But it's also a great comfort for us to know that, that, that the Lord loves us enough to, to go that far for us. Maybe you can look back in your life and say, you know, I remember God brought some hard times and they were what I needed because I was walking away from him. I know I look back and I can see a, an accident, a car accident, and I can see public humiliation in my past, both of which God used, they were painful, to say, what are you doing? It's not to say that all tragedy or suffering is a matter of God's dark discipline. It's not. The book of Job was written to alleviate that absolute. It's like, but sometimes it is. And maybe the Lord is trying to get your attention in your life right now. Maybe you've been a wanderer. And maybe he's brought some hard stuff into your life to say, hey, hello, you. You're mine. I'm going to hunt you. How far do I have to go? Do I got to send you in the fish too? Severity of God's mercy. And then finally, and this is the, on the lighter side, with regards to the pagan sailors, it just shows us God's eagerness to show mercy to the undeserving. In one sense, we're all undeserving, but, but the very fact that he, he delivered idol worshipers is pretty remarkable. This reminds us that God is not, like, hesitant to show mercy. He's not hesitant. He's eager and waiting for his people to humble themselves and say, like what, what Jonah should have done. He should have said, uncle, I'm done. Uncle, I'm done. I've learned my lesson. That's what the Lord wants us to do is just say, uncle, I'm done. My agenda is my agenda, and I'm sorry, and I get the point, and please draw me back. And the Lord's like, yes, eager to show mercy to humble people. And that is a beautiful picture of, of who, who God is. So this morning, just again, this is supposed to be a personal word to the church, to Parkway, to you and to me. What is your agenda that you're pursuing? And is it in alignment with, with Christ's agenda? Are you in alignment with it or are you pursuing something else? Because two different agendas, as I said, um, will, provide, will, will produce disappointment, frustration, and a lack of joy in your life. But the reverse of aligning oneself with Christ and his purposes of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness of loving Christ more than you love the world or singing a song like, give me Jesus, you can have all the world because that's what matters most. Is that your alignment or, or is it something else? And if, if not, then maybe this morning you need to say, uncle, I'm, I'm done, Lord, I, I'm done. And you know why he's worthy of trusting in terms of his agenda? You know why his agenda is worth, worth following? Because Jesus is both the one who commands the storm, and ironically enough, Jesus is also the one who said, throw me over the edge so those living might live. You ever think about that? Jesus, in effect, said, listen, you can take my life, crucify me, throw me over the edge of the ship, not for my own guilt, but for the guilt of those who remain that they might live. That he is both the one who commands the storm and gives his life and love to save sinners like you and me. And someone who loves us with that kind of power 
and um, grace is worthy of aligning all of our agendas into because he's he's worth it you can trust him trust somebody who loves you that much i pray this morning we just spend a couple seconds with god and maybe it's time to say uncle or maybe it's time just to say thank you lord for saving me um, i know what it's like to be delivered and i'm just living the living the dream and loving you and if that's the case just give thanks let's pray father we ask in these just moments we've heard your word and i pray that it would not um it would not lie lifeless but decisions would be made this morning that some in here would say uncle um, knowing that you are a god who's eager to be merciful eager, eager eager to forgive eager to draw near so lord we, we pray just do your work holy spirit with this word as only you can in christ's name amen